It, there is no place I'd rather be this morning than to get to celebrate with you. And it was, it was especially sweet this morning because both of my boys were willing to kind of engage in worship and I found myself drumming on my son's chest. Talk about like beatboxing. He is, my, he is like my gym bay. I'm just like beating on his chest. So don't call CPS or anything like that. It was a joyful noise to the Lord. and It just made this dad's heart happy. Hey, we are in January. It's vision month. And so as we do each January, we refocus on, God, what are you calling us to do? What are you, who are you calling us to be? And how are we going to go about doing that? Last week, if you were here, we really set the foundation by reminding ourselves of what God has called us to be. Namely, he has called us to be a church that is about making disciples who are growing in their relationship with God growing in their relationship with one another, and growing in their relationship with our neighbors, or loving God, loving one another, and loving our neighbors. That is our purpose. And so can we throw it up here on the board? I want you guys to get used to this. I want you to be familiar with this, because this is the clarion call that God has given us about three years ago, and this shapes everything we do. So would you just go ahead and read with me? Lighthouse Community Church is committed to making disciples who love God, love one another, and love our neighbors. So what we talked about last week is our purpose is to make disciples. And what we mean by that is fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. We are not interested in simply making students of Scripture who have memorized more Scripture and have more information stuffed into their brain. That's not what we're about. The Pharisees had lots of information stuffed in their brain, and they totally missed the heart of God. That's not what we want to do. Because disciple is not synonymous with student, at least in the way that we understand that word. A student is somebody who goes to class for a few days or a few hours a day, sits in a seat, and listens to a lecture, and that is how they are hopefully transformed. But the reality is all they, it's kind of bulimic, right? You, you binge on the information and then purge it up on the test and forget it because you don't even ever need to know it again, supposedly. That's not what we are about because that doesn't lead to any lasting transformation. We are looking to make disciples, and that happens, at least in the way that Jesus understood it, through life-on-life proximity. Jesus' invitation was never pray a prayer. Jesus' invitation was always follow me because as we walk with him, as we are in close proximity, we are shaped by that proximity. We become we, we watch what the discipler is doing, and we begin to do the same things. And as we're doing them, we are shaped in the image of the person whom we are following. Now, I'll remind you, we are not interested in making disciples of Jeff, or of me, or of Diane, or of Jeannie, or of anybody other than Jesus Christ. That is who we're being discipled by. Although, we journey together. And so as we are in proximity, I love what Paul said. He said, follow me as I follow Christ, right? So as we journey together in life groups, which are the lifeblood, they are the heartbeat of this church. That is where the life on life happens. But as we pursue Jesus together, we will be shaped in his image. We are becoming disciples. But it is not simply so that we will become more like Jesus we also recognize that Jesus commissioned us to be disciple makers. So we're disciples or fully committed followers of Jesus who are also helping others get to know and begin to walk with Jesus. Is somebody trying to come in? Hold on just a second. I think somebody's trying to come through the door. Let's in- welcome them. 
I'm hearing stuff. I'm hoping that wasn't the Holy Spirit leaving the building. Maybe he was coming. He's like, all right, he's here. We'll go with that. Okay. I'm telling you, Jeff, you start making jokes about my hearing going, and then it starts, right? Okay. So we are about make, being disciples or fully committed followers of Jesus who are used by God to make disciples. The very last thing that Jesus said to his disciples, to his closest followers, what we know as the Great Commission, is a commissioning for us as well. Let's go ahead and read it. <clears throat> therefore, and, and before we move on, whenever you see a therefore, you need to ask, what is the therefore? The very first thing he says is, hey, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All right? The Father has entrusted the care of his creation to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we're called to be disciples who make disciples, but this begs the question, how? How do we, in the 21st century, go about making disciples of Jesus Christ when Jesus is not here in the flesh anymore? We can't just be like, hey, I'm hanging with, with Jesus. Come with me. Let's go meet him. So how do we do this? How do we go about making disciples? Well, typically, our answer is this. It's kind of an attractional model where we say, I need to invite my family I need to invite my neighbors, I need to invite my classmates or my coworkers to come to church with me because my pastor's job is to tell them about Jesus and to teach them how to follow everything he's taught them. Like, that's the pastor's job. That is what sociologists refer to as the attractional model, and it is the predominant model in the West, which is where we live. Um, this is how we tend to be. We, we build beautiful buildings, and sometimes we refurbish them like we did last year to make them even more inviting, and then we often sit back and wait for people to come and hope that they will stumble in here so that they can be introduced to Jesus. But here's the problem. What we are finding is that predominantly that is happening less and less and less, that the attractional model does not work. If it ever worked, it's certainly not working any longer. And we are watching the church, the gathering within these buildings that we build, dwindling around the world. Why? Primarily, it's because there's so many other things competing with people's attention. Things like, I don't know, football, right? Or, or, or sleep, or exercise or whatever it happens to be. For many people, they just don't understand, they don't see how a crucified carpenter from the Middle East could have any bearing whatsoever on how they live. Or perhaps they don't see a need for a relationship with God because when they look at themselves and they compare themselves to what they're seeing on the news and what they're seeing in their neighbors, they go, man, I'm doing pretty good. I'm a pretty stinking good person. What do I need Jesus for? Right? For whatever reason... We're seeing that the influence of the church is lessening. But what we want to be reminded of is that God never told us to take a passive role in this, to sit back and wait for people to come. Instead, that the, the clue to the posture that he called us to take is found at the very beginning of that great commission. Right after the therefore, that next word, 
go. Here's what I've become increasingly convinced of and what became very clear to me as we walked through the missional pathway last year. God never called the church or the people to go to church. He called the church to go and be his witnesses. God never, his, 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 his number one priority wasn't to get people to go to church. It was get, to get the church, which is you and me. Remember, this building is not the church. We are the church. We happen to meet in a place that we refer to the church, which is why it gets so stinking confusing and why we often think that the footprint of this building is the church. It's not. You are. And what he's telling us here is the church, my fully committed followers, my sons and my daughters who have been restored and redeemed, you now go, and as you go, be my ambassadors of hope. Be the kind of people whose lives pour out love, live differently. And by the way, this was exactly the example that God set, because you'll recall that God didn't just sit back and wait for his people, his image bearers who had stumbled into sin to wake up one day and go, oh my goodness, we've totally screwed up. God, we want you, we need you, and wait for them to come. Instead, he took the first and most important step by sending Jesus Christ to take on flesh and to live, to tabernacle with us, to walk with us. While we were still sinners, Christ came and he gave his life for us. And I will tell you this, Jesus Christ was the first and he was the most perfect light bearer in all of history. He came to do what this light bulb is doing, to shine the light of God's love into the darkness, into the ways that humanity had totally missed the heart of God. They had taken his love and it had gotten buried under the law so that they had become legalistic, not loving. And Jesus came to, sh to kind of pull God's image bearers away from that and said, let's remember the heart of God. Don't just fixate on the rules. Understand the heart underneath why those were put into place. God is not simply a killjoy. He loves you and he's trying to protect you and protect your relationships because at the end of the day, you were created to be his representative. In fact, Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus recognized this is what he came into the world to be, to be a light bearer. But then he, he and for a time, Jesus' life attracted a whole lot of people. Hundreds and thousands of people began to throng to him. And then after three years of ministry, he said something to his disciples that given the fact that he came to be the light, given the fact that he came to be God's ambassador to reveal God's heart, what he said to his disciples after three years of ministry probably sounded pretty shocking to their ears. He said this, I am going to do what's best for you. Well, Jesus, I appreciate that. Amen. That's why I'm going away. Hold on. Excuse me. What? You're going to do what's best for us, so you're going to leave us? How on earth is that in our best interest? Why are you going to leave? He goes on. The Holy Spirit cannot come to help you until I leave. 
But after I am gone, I will send the Spirit to you. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us? Yes, I have come to be the light bearer, God's ambassador of hope. And it's good news of great joy for all people. But remember, there was only one of Jesus. And if you read the Gospels, what you will begin to see is that even during Jesus' public ministry, there simply was not enough of him to go around. There were throngs of people who wanted him to be with them, to heal them, to feed them, to teach them. And yet he was constantly saying, we need to go to another town. It, people would say, keep the little kids away from him. Don't waste his time because we want to spend time with him. So keep the kids away. They're just a distraction. And Jesus is like, excuse me. The kingdom of heaven is for those with hearts like little children. Don't hinder them from coming to me. Jesus' Jesus coming was good news of great joy for all people, but there wasn't enough of him to be able to interact with all people. And so his going and his sending of the Holy Spirit enabled God's image bearers, the men and women who ultimately chose to answer his invitation to follow him, to walk with him, to become more like him, so that they could somehow begin to do what he had been doing. That is why Jesus had the Holy Spirit come, so that we could then do what Jesus had been doing. I, I will tell you this, we cannot do it without the Holy Spirit's enablement. On our own, we will screw up and we will never adequately reflect the heart of God. We will never adequately shine the hope into this world the way He did. And even with the Holy Spirit, we're still going to screw up because we still have flesh. And this side of the grave, we'll never do it perfectly. But Jesus looked at His disciples <clears throat> at the beginning of His uh, Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon He ever gave. And after talking to the masses of people who were looking at him, the people who had come to, to hear from him, he looked directly at his disciples and he told them this, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden, right? It's, it's there, the light shines for all to see. And in the same way, you don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl, right? You don't turn the lights on and then cover them up with a dark cloth so that the light cannot get out. No, you put it on a stand so it gives light to the whole room. In the same way, let your light shine amongst all people that they might see your good deeds, that they might see the way you live, that they might see the way your life is different from how the rest of the world lives and operates, that they might see how your values aren't the same as the values they see modeled by other so-called influencers. Not so that they will glorify you, but so that they will glorify your Father in heaven, that they might become followers themselves, that they might begin to call Him Father themselves. Here's the point that Jesus was saying to His disciples. In the same way that He was coming to be a light bearer, to shine in the darkness, to drive back the darkness, to point people back to the true, authentic heart of God, over and against all of the legalistic ways it had been morphed and changed and, and misinterpreted, we now, with the Holy Spirit's enablement, are light bearers as well. well. 
created to radiate the love of Jesus Christ right where we're at. And so he called his people to go and make disciples, just as Jesus has been doing. But I want to I clarify something about the Great Commission. Can we throw it back up there? Yes, no, maybe so. That part that says, therefore. There we go. That's it. So when we, when we read the Great Commission, go and make disciples, one of the ways that we misinterpret it is that we can kind of shift from a passive kind of sitting back like, like the attractional church does, right? We sit back and we wait for the lost to kind of stumble in so that we can then introduce them to Jesus and they can become unlost or whatever that is. We shift from that to feeling like we have to go somewhere in order to be used by God, right? We read that great commission and we see the word go and it feels like the command that God is saying is you must leave where you're at in order to make disciples. You must cross borders. You must go halfway around the world in order to be able to fulfill what I have called you to do. A lot of times that's the way the great commission is presented. And the reason we make that interpretation is because, unfortunately, the Greek of this has been translated into English, and when we do it, there are limitations in that. We miss some of the nuance. So when we read this, this is from the NIV, but just about any other translation translates it virtually the same. When we read go, we read it as an imperative command. Go! Get out of here! Not you, Darlene. You don't have to leave just yet. Just stick around for just a minute. The fact of the matter is, though, that word in its original language is not an imperative command. It is not a declaration you have to get up and go. In fact, there are four verbs in the Great Commission. Go, make, as in make disciples, baptize, and teach. Three of those verbs are imperative commands. Make, baptize, teach. But the first one is not. It is a totally different tense. It is a passive tense. Almost as if it's saying, and probably a better translation would be, as you go. As you are going through life, as you are moving along, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them how to follow everything I've taught you. But even just interpreting it that way doesn't quite get to the heart of what this is saying. Because it still puts the onus on us as I go along, as I'm strolling along, I'm making disciples of whoever happens to be in proximity to me. It's closer, but not close enough. Because that word go, it's not us who are the ones who are making ourselves go. It's almost as if they are being compelled, forced, moved through life. As you are moved along through life, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. Well, what is it that is moving us? Certainly, it's circumstances. The circumstances of our lives, maybe for some people, it's we can't afford to live here, so we're going to move to Idaho. No judgment upon you, Getzes, <laughs> right? Or, or perhaps your job moved you here, so that's how you happen to find yourself in Orange County, or perhaps it was you have an ailing parent that 
you wanted to be closer to, or you had children who had grandchildren, doggone it, you don't really care about the children, but the grandchildren are a gift from God, and you wanted to be near to them. So you moved from Texas to here, hypothetically, bloods, right? Whatever happened to move you, maybe it's circumstances. Certainly for the, the early church, it was persecution. We, we saw a while ago, and we'll look at it a, a couple weeks again from now, that when persecution broke out, it forced the people to leave Jerusalem. And as they went, they will begin to make disciples. We'll see as we jump back into Acts starting in February. But underneath all of this, we need to remember one thing. God is sovereign. And although it might seem like where we happen to find ourselves is arbitrary, just happened to live in this house because it was the cheapest rent I could find. Just happened to work at this place because it was the only one that called me back. Just happened to go to the school because it's within the footprint of where we are and the gerrymandering of how the district puts kids. This is where we get to go. Just happened to be here because I just happened to be born into this family, right? Or because that college was the closest or that college was the only one that would let me go there. They're the only ones that actually responded positively to my, whatever it happens to be, it, we know that we have a sovereign God and it is not arbitrary. I love that song, um, you know, in his heart, a man plans his path, but the Lord directs his steps. We may think we're the ones who are moving ourselves around, but ultimately it's God who is moving us and placing us. So as you go, as God moves you around, wherever you happen to find yourself, make disciples. That does not mean you can't go into Mexico, you can't go to Costa Rica, you can't go to South Africa in order to share the gospel. But what it means primarily is that wherever you happen to find yourself, God has sovereignly planted you there so that you can be a disciple maker. Yes, it may mean that you end up going to Costa Rica in February with Lighthouse and you get to go and minister to some people, but it also means that when you're walking down the street with your dog and you take him to the park or when you go to work or you know, when you get together to watch the, the Super Bowl in a, in a month or so. Wherever you happen to be, you are a disciple maker. Now, wait a minute, Eric. Does this mean that I shouldn't invite my friends to church? What I'm hearing you say is that we are the church and we're called to, to go. And as we're going, we need to become more aware of the people around us. Does that mean I should invite my people? No, of course you can invite them to church. Of course you can invite them to participate with you on a Sunday morning or to participate with you in the life group that you're a part of. But do not forget, this building is not the church. You are the church. So in the same way that you can invite them, just as Jesus invited his disciples to come with him and he went to the synagogue, he worshiped God, they worshiped, him with God. They worshiped God with him. Of course you can invite them, but... Don't forget that you are just as much being the church when you're at school interacting with your fellow classmates and you're on the playground and you're playing, Ethan. <laughs> that you are just as much being and doing church when you go over out to lunch with somebody today after church. I'd encourage you to invite somebody, go out to lunch or invite them over to your house to have dinner. And as you're doing that, that is just as much an expression of the church being the church as what we're doing right now. 
is just as important. Because you and I and every image bearer of God that has accepted Jesus into our hearts and has said, Jesus, I choose to follow you, is a light, is the church. And God is inviting us into the grand adventure of reflecting his heart to the world around us. Now, I would imagine that for some of us, as I'm, dis- as I'm explaining this, you're beginning to sink down in your seat and going, Ugh. so you mean to tell me, Eric, that I am required to be on every time I interact with a neighbor, every time I'm hanging with my family, even if they talk politics, um, every time I'm at work, I'm not just representing my company, I'm representing Jesus, and I, am I required to disciple all of my neighbors and all of my unbelieving family and all of my coworkers or all of my fellow students? Because if that's the case, I'm never leaving home again. The answer is, of course, no. It's not. That is not what you are called to do, is to disciple every single person you come into contact with. Because even Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was surrounded by thousands of people, some of whom chose to follow him. There were crowds that would go. Even when Jesus said, we need... My, my, my cousin, John the Baptist, was just killed I'm feeling a little emotionally overwhelmed right now. I need to get away and spend some time with the Father. Disciples, let's go. And they get in a boat and they cross over. Even then, crowds of people followed. And so when he landed, there's a bunch of people. And thankfully, Jesus was interruptible in that moment. And he ended up teaching and spending the whole day. And ultimately, that's what the feeding of the 5,000 comes out of that moment. But even Jesus did not call every single one of those people in the crowd, his disciples. Of the crowds, Jesus invited 12 to walk more closely with him. Jesus extended the invitation, follow me, and they chose to accept it. So he had 12 that were walking more intimately in closer proximity. And of those 12, there were three that walked in even closer proximity to him. And so in no way are we suggesting that every person you come into contact with has to be your disciple or that you have to invite them into your life. There are certain people, however, that God has placed in proximity to you. And toward that end, I want to, we want to as a church, help equip you, not only over the course of this year, but over the course of us as a church. This is going to be what we are about as a church, is equipping you to begin to live like that light bulb. This church, we might call ourselves Lighthouse, but ultimately you are the light. And we may gather here for a moment on Sundays, but ultimately the light leaves the building and you go back to your neighborhoods, you go back to your work on Monday, you go back to your schools, you go back to your gyms, at least until maybe like halfway through February and then, you know, you forget about it. Um, You go back to the supermarkets you shop at, you go back to rubbing shoulders with God's children who have forgotten or may not know that God loves them. You're living like this, and we want to help you to begin to live more intentionally. So I'm going to invite the, wel- the, the welcome team to stand up and begin passing out a tool that we have developed to help equip you to begin to do this more intentionally. They're going to pass it out. As they do, I'll just give you a preview for those of you who it's going to take a few moments. This card here, 
we can't take credit for. This is something that was birthed out of the missional pathway, but the beautiful part of this is after the missional pathway, after God kind of laid down the direction that we are called to be as a church, which is to equip you to be light bearers to your sphere of influence, to equip you to more intentionally love the people that he's placed in your proximity, began talking and brainstorming with Jeff. And he said, you know, I've got a a mentor of mine that is probably 36 years further down the path than we are in this. And it's radically transformed not only his church, it's transformed the entire high desert. Would you like to meet him? I said, yes, I would. So we went to his church, and this tool that we have since taken and made for our own, we changed the wording, but basically the heart is exactly the same. We stole this unapologetically from him, and he gave us permission, all right? So Tom... Uh, Mercer, thank you for that if you're listening. Okay, so this card on the front is a light bulb. What I love about this picture, and it's this, this passage from Matthew 5, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What I love about this picture is that although there is one light bulb that is in focus, which represents you, there's a whole bunch of other light bulbs. It reminds us that we're not the only ones. And the other thing I really love about this picture is that light bulb has a bunch of dust on it. I'm okay with that because guess what? We're dirty too. We are imperfect. We don't, sometimes our own humanity gets in the way of of perfectly reflecting God's heart, but that's okay. He uses us anyway. So turn it over because that really is just kind of so that we have something on both sides. This is the side that matters. This is the tool that I want to introduce to you, and it's going to be something that we are going to be using not just for this year, but for years to come, because this is way more than just a theme for the year. This is the heartbeat of what we are called to do. This is a better understanding of what we are called to be and do as a church, which is making disciples, you guys, who are growing in their relationship with God doing life with one another through life groups primarily, so that you can shine and love your neighbors beyond the walls of this place. So, who's in your sphere of influence is the only question this is asking. Who are the 8 to 15 people that God has sovereignly planted in and around your life? Could be your neighbor's could be some friends, whether friends, they're, they're new friends, or maybe it's friends you've, you've done life with your whole life. Maybe it's some of your family members. Maybe it's some coworkers or classmates, or maybe it's just somebody that you interact with when you go to the gym or to the supermarket. Only you and the Holy Spirit can answer that question. And there are five steps to beginning to work and use this tool in your life. Step number one is to identify who those eight to 15 people are. Now, when you begin to do this, please don't feel like, oh, I got to get this right. I can't screw it up because if I screw it up, I'm just going to rip it up and I'm just, I failed. We printed like 2,500 copies of this. So if you screw up, it's fine. And I know that the people you write down today might be very different from who you might write down six months from now. So please, please, please don't get stuck on that. But I would encourage you to spend some time praying, God, who are the people that you've placed into my sphere of influence. You might find yourself adding names or maybe scratching some out from time to time. You might find that you want to grab a new card and update this every month or so. That's fine. I hope you do. 
Step number one is simply to identify who they are, that God has placed into proximity to you, that you're rubbing shoulders with. Step number two is to begin to pray for them on a daily basis by name. I've started using this card. I took it with me when I went up to um, Central California earlier this week. I got to go for a walk in the Redwoods. And while I was there, I have this in my Bible. And so I pull it out. I'm kind of using it as my bookmark. I pull it out on the plane, and I begin to pray through the 13 or 14 people that I've identified at this point. I start praying for my wife. I start praying for my two sons by name. I start praying for my mother-in-law. Those are the four people that I live with. They are in the closest proximity to me. So, of course, they're part of my sphere of influence. And I start praying for the families of the best friends of both of my sons, the Abuds and the Garbauskases, because those are the families that we are walking most closely with in this season because our boys are hanging out with them. I start praying for my brother Mark and his daughter Kayla, and I start praying for Chelsea and her family who lives across the street but has really become family, and we're doing a lot of life in this season of our life. I started praying for Mike, who's this man that lives on Rochester Street. His dog is named Big Guy. It's my dog Sadie's very favorite person or thing on this planet. Every time she sees him, she piddles and runs right at him, right? So because of that, I get a lot of time hanging with Mike at the park. And it's gone from me just knowing his dog's name to knowing his name to, as we've had more conversations, knowing what he does for a living, who he roots for, the Patriots, but I still love him, Um, what he is good at, and some of the wounds that he carries around Um, and and it gives me the ability to begin praying more intentionally for him. I got Tom Vrevich on here, Tommy who's back there, who also lives on Rochester, and it's only in in the last few months that we've gotten to know one another and have begun to do life together. I started also praying for my brother Tyler um, and for Posh, who is a checker at the Ralphs right down the street, whom we love. My wife and I have gotten to know her, and every time we see her at the supermarket, doesn't matter how long her line is, it's typically longer than the others because people like her. Um, we gravitate towards her line and wait because we love her, and we've, had, we've begun having more intentional conversations. So I've identified for this season the people God has placed, and I could add so many more names, but I really just kind of sat with it and, and, and prayerfully said, God, who are the people you've placed in proximity to my life right now who I'm kind of doing life with, intentionally or unintentionally? I began praying through that, and I do that most days. Whenever I pull that card out, it just prompts me. Sometimes I will pray more intentionally for one or two names as opposed to just doing all of them quickly. Third, As you're praying for them, here's what I have found. Prayer may and often does affect their lives, but more importantly, it begins to shape the way you think about the time and the way you, you view the interactions you have with them. Prayer doesn't just change others, it changes your heart. So when I find myself around these people, I'm beginning to come at it with a different perspective, beginning to be more intentional about our interactions. And step number three is simply to be intentional about having interactions. So if I know that Mike walks big guy to the park at certain times of the day, well then when it works with my schedule, I will be more intentional to walk Sadie to the park at that time so that there's the potential that we can interact. You get the point. Step number four is to invite them into your life, to walk with you. It's the same invitation that Jesus gave. This might not happen immediately. It might be through a long 
kind of <clears throat> season of investing in this person that you finally begin to walk in such a way that you go, hey, why don't we, you know, I'm gonna, I, I've got an extra ticket to this function. You want to come with me? Hey, would you like to go grab coffee at some point and, and, and hang out? Hey, would you like to come to life group with me? Or hey, you know, we're, we're doing this Thanksgiving thing. Um, or, or, or hey, listen, I'm going to have a, a, a Super Bowl party. Would you like to come over for that? Whatever it happens to be. Hey, I go to church at 10 a.m. on Sundays. You want to come with me? Listen, the beautiful part of this, this is not a church growth thing. I don't, if this doesn't add another person to our church, that's fine. So long as you begin to recognize that we are not the house of light, you are the light. You are the light bulbs that God has sovereignly planted in Huntington Beach, down in Balboa, in Santa Ana, and all over Costa Mesa, Fountain Valley, and other places. God has planted you there. He's planted you in certain workplaces, or he's going to plant you in certain workplaces. He's put you into proximity to people, and now he's inviting you to be a light in their life. Now, what's the church's job in this? Like, if, if you're, Eric, it sounds like right now you're putting all the onus on us. What's your job? We'll talk about that next week. <laughs> I still got to think about it. But, I'm just kidding. But, that is what you're called to be. And as you begin to <clears throat> work these first four steps, you're going to begin to recognize wait, my life's on display. People are watching it, and I'm actually beginning to recognize that how I live matters. And because of that, you're going to want to increase your own intimacy with God. You're going to begin to feel this need of, I want to continue to pursue Jesus so that I'm not pouring out of the dregs of my own life, but I'm pouring out of the overflow of my intimacy with God. I can personally attest that if you are not pursuing Jesus, it's really, really, really difficult to do the first four, particularly the, la the steps three and four, really difficult. If you don't have a relationship with God of your own that you are investing in. And that will hopefully drive you back into your community here and say, all right, I want to continue to grow. I want to I dive deep in my life group. I want to I share the excitement of what God is doing or, or just contend with some of the people on my list that are going through the ringer right now. And, and your life group can become kind of this phalanx of people who stand with you and support you. But guys, this is simply a tool to help you to begin to be more intentional about being what God created you to be, namely a light in your particular sphere of influence where he has sovereignly planted you for this season. I hope, in fact, I'll go beyond hope, I want to exhort you not to leave this on your chair afterwards because it doesn't really matter and you're not planning on doing it. May I exhort you not to circular file it in the trash can as you're leaving. May I exhort you not to toss it into the back of your car along with like the in and out wrappers and forget about it until, you know, you clean out your car next June. <laughs> Hypothetically. Would you take this home? Would you prayerfully work through the first couple of steps at the very least? Would you identify who those 8 to 15 people are in your sphere of influence? Would you begin to pray for them and just see what God does with that? And then in your life groups this week, 
Would you bring your cards? And would you share in your life group who God has planted in your sphere of influence? That you, and then pray for one another. Maybe even pray for your lists. Now, it's one thing to give you this. And one of the things we're going to start doing is we're going to start carving out space to share stories of some of the fruit that's coming from this. And so I, um, I want to invite my friend Kilby to come up here right now because uh, his father is one of the people in his sphere of influence, very obviously. His father is somebody who he's done life with like his whole life, right? Um, and God used Kilby in his father's life. Your dad, your dad had a rough week. Why don't you go ahead and share a little bit about kind of how this intersects with what happened this week? Okay, well, uh, first of all, thanks, Pastor Eric, mm-hmm. for the journey you've taken and talking about the past. I know Pastor Paul and Paul and you know, Ashley, I'm like, okay, well, I'm ready to hit the circuit because I'd love to talk about that later. Um, anyways, um, it all started when my, my father was born in um, December 20th, 1949. Um, I was born in June 25th, 1972. Um, my birth certificate birth certificate, there was no name of a father, so technically, by the world standard, I'm a bastard child, born on a hippie commune, um, so you can imagine what my life was like, filled with nothing but holiness for my whole life. My dad has been running from God his whole life. Nine years ago, I came to the Lord, and it's he's just placed um, men alongside me, women alongside me, prayer warriors, ministry, grown me in my faith, and showed me what it's like to do the will of God. So um, last Sunday, I got a phone call. Um, my dad had suffered a um, major seizure of um, 15 minutes long. So he's 70 years old, really strong, but his bones aren't so strong. Come to find out, he had broken five vertebrae in his back, broke his scapula, was rushed to the hospital. Um, testing was being, being done. So, of course, we rushed to the hospital, me and my wife, my kids, um, so over uh, a maraud of testing, what's going on? We're trying to find out, you know, what caused this, if it was swelling in the brain, if there's something else going on. So things kind of calmed down that day. He's in pain. We go home. The next day I come to um, his, there's two, there's a name, Julie, that you're going to hear a lot. That's my dad's wife. She's not my mother. My dad's wife, she's been going to church and, and um, following, the lot, following the Lord and praying for my dad to, um, you know, to do the same. So um, we, I walk into the, to the hospital, and Julie looks at me, and she says, your dad's been diagnosed with geoplastoma tumor, which is what, um, basically what John McCain had. Um, it's, it's a worldly death sentence. Um, so at that moment, you know, it's, it's a pretty heavy load. Um, mm-hmm. But God gave me power, and he was able to let it shine through the whole situation. So I comforted her, and I said, okay, we'll get through it. I'm going to make some phone calls. So I walk downstairs, and I, I call my wife, and um, she's, she's at peace um, being the prayer warrior she is in strength. So, um, excuse me, do you have something for me? Thank you. I, I told him bring a white hanky. Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, so thank you, thank you. So um, as I'm, I get off the phone with my wife, and I'm kind of at this point kind of in... In a daze, I'm, I'm kind of numb to what's going on, and um, the the sorrow, the the um, the regret is starting to boil up in my body. So I'm making my way back into the hospital, and I stop into the chapel, and I sit down, and this is the first time since I've been um, saved that I actually felt 
odd and felt uncomfortable, and it was very clear to me that God didn't need me there. He needed me somewhere else. He needed me upstairs with my dad. So I, I go upstairs in the elevator. Excuse me. I walk upstairs in the elevator, and I'm just like, okay, Lord, what's going on? This is like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? And he quieted my soul and just had me walk into my dad's room. Um, at that time, Julie was off the side with her um, church members um, in, 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 you know, ultimate sorrow. Um, what's going on? I'm sitting in the um, room with my father, and I'm looking through, what are we doing here, God? Is this happening? So I'm looking through scripture, and I'm thinking, is this the day? Is this when salvation comes, or what's happening? So I'm looking through scripture, and my phone stops on, on Psalm 51, David's prayer. So I'm like, okay, what's, you know, what's going on here? Is this really going to happen? My dad is completely out of it, on morphine, um, completely um, unconscious. I was like, oh, okay, Lord, if he wakes up. At that instant, my dad wakes up clear as day. Not a sign of any drug, looking straight at me. Hey, son. Okay, this is, so I stand up. This is God. So I stand up, and I look at my dad, and I said, Dad, there's still something we need to do. And he said, yes, son, and I'm ready. And I paused, and I looked over him. I said, so you're ready to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And he said, yes, I am. Hold on. I'm going to go get Julie. <laughs> so, I, so I run outside. I go, I go, I stick my head out the waiting room. Julie, it's happening now. I should not have said that. She runs in. What's going on? She's freaking out. She's running in. I pull her inside the doors. It's happening right now. My dad's accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. She looks at the nurses. What? Uh, you know, and I'm like, let's go. You kneel down. You grab, her hand, you grab his hand. We're going to say this prayer. She, she kneels down. Um, I kneel next to him. I'm like, okay, dad, we're doing this. Recite after me. Clear as day as if he had not been through any pain, any drugs, recites um, Psalm 51 after me. I said, thank you, son, I mean, Father, you're, you are now son of God, I go, and I'm going to allow you to be some time with your wife. Please excuse me. So I said, Julie, spend some time with Dad. I walk out. I share the news. Um, it's great elation. What um, the enemy um, had planned to be for sorrow, God used for, to glorify his kingdom and to strengthen his kingdom. About 15 minutes later, Julie walks out, of look of absolute rebirth. She was walking tall, standing tall, smiling, jumping around. I mean, it was, it was, it was absolutely unbelievable, unless you know God, what he's capable of. Um, so at that point, we're standing there, we're celebrating. And I tell you this because my dad was scheduled at 3 o'clock to go in for surgery. It was 1045 when this um, happened. We're standing there, we're celebrating. The nurses stick their head out and go, we're taking them to the surgery now. So the, if I had hesitated, if I had stayed in the chapel, if God had not listened to God and been obedient, um, who knows what would have happened. But um, so basically, praise God, um, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and I know that Larry um, came through surgery. They were able to remove the, the major lump, but with that particular kind of head brain cancer, it's still a matter of six months to a year or so that he has. Yes. Yes. But I know that you've been sharing that he's a different man. Yes. So um, when I asked Julie, when my dad was rushed off the surgery, I said, so what was my dad's response? And she said, he said, I've lived a long life. I'm 70 years old. I've done a lot of things. Um, he goes, but I'm ready because I now know that um, I'm accepted. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and I'm done running. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, we just need to give God glory for that. And I just want to take a moment uh, as Kilby's extended family here. 
to, to lift up his father, our brother. I love the fact that although this cancer is still in his body and it will ultimately, unless Jesus comes or something else happens, it will claim his physical body. But even this cancer, uh, this brain tumor doesn't get the last word. Jesus says. And so I just want to take a moment to pray for him. And, and as we pray for him, also pray for how God uses this time. Because on Monday, God turned another one of his light bearers on. And he's using him right now at the hospital. And he will continue to use him. And, and I just, let's pray for him. Father God, thank you. Thank you for answering the cry of Kilby's heart and of so many other people's desire to watch Larry give his life to you. I thank you for completely and eternally altering the trajectory of his soul. I thank you, God, that this cancer will not get the last word. I thank you for your timing. I thank you for the way you compelled Kilby out of the chapel to be beside his father. What a beautiful picture of as you go, make disciples. And God, now, this isn't the end of his journey. Now the discipleship begins. <clears throat> I pray, Father, that his, his father would have the opportunity to publicly declare his faith through baptism to the community. I know there's a lot of people who have been following his life and have been influenced by him. I pray, God, that you would use his life to influence them towards you. God, I pray that you would use Kilby and others to teach his father, Larry, all that you have laid and taught on Kilby's heart, that he would be shaped more and more in your image. God, I pray for the Larrys in our lives, the men and women whom we love that you've placed in proximity, who at this point have not recognized that how deeply they're loved, and that the choices of their past don't dictate their relationship with you because you sent Jesus to redeem all of us. And God, I pray that you would use my brothers and my sisters in this room and my, and my brothers and my sisters who are hearing this message later on online or on a CD. Would you help yourself to our lives? We're your sons and your daughters created in your image to reflect the light of your love into this sin-darkened world. Would you help yourself to our lives, Jesus, for your name's sake and for your image-bearer's sake? Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Thank you, so we're going to keep... In the, in the coming weeks and months, we're going to keep carving out space to share stories like that. My hope is, as you begin to take this seriously and use this as the tool that is intended to be, as simply a, a, a tangible reminder, maybe it's on your refrigerator, maybe it's in your Bible, maybe it's in your car, so every time you drive, you see it, as a tangible reminder to live intentionally with the people God has placed in your sphere of influence. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. My prayer, my hope, I would anticipate that we will have a lot more stories. Maybe not quite so, oh, is that? But still, my guess is this is going to begin shaping the way you look at the way you live. I can say that because it's already had that effect on me. I am already living differently in my neighborhood, a little bit in my workplace, 
Um, in, in the places that I frequent, even the supermarket, I go, I am living differently because I have begun thinking of myself as part of the church, being the church, being a light bearer. And let's just remember this. Think of how you came to know Jesus Christ. Although some of you may have accepted him at a crusade or may have accepted him at a camp or maybe it was a pastor who was leading you uh, to pray a prayer, my guess is you were only there because you had had somebody else in your life that you had been living in proximity to that had lived in such a way that you started saying, I want what they've got. And perhaps that person invited you to come along. And that's how you found yourself at church or at that camp or at the crusade. Sociologists say that something like 95% of people who give their hearts to Christ do so primarily because of a close relationship with somebody else. And God is inviting us to be the kind of people who are intentional about doing life with others so that his children created in his image would come home. Prodigals like Kilby's father, who find themselves covered in the slop, the mess of the pigsty that in many ways they have created. And they say, God could never, ever forgive me. God could never use me. And guess what? We get to be the agents of hope, the ambassadors of reconciliation, the light in the darkness that doesn't lead them to us but rather leads them to the only one who could save their soul. Father God, thank you for using us. Thank you that you use imperfect light bulbs that are covered in the dust of this sin-scarred world to radiate the light of your hope, your love, your grace, your peace into our spheres of influence. We pray that you would move us along as you see fit and give us the eyes to recognize the people that you have placed into proximity to us that we might love them and walk with them. We can't save a single one of them. Only you can. But God, thank you for allowing us to be part of their journey back to you. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Let's worship together.